Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. They left them to die. I just think it was a horrible way. He knew that they were still alive, and he chose to walk out and leave. My first thought was, they're still in the house. We need to get out of here. My mom wasn't even in the door yet. And I just remember opening the door. I ran out and opened the door and I was like, no, we gotta go, we gotta go. Don't go in, don't go in. And she's like, what? And I'm like, no, we can't, you know? I was thinking they're still in the house. Like, these people could be in there to get us. And I remember calling my best friend since kindergarten. I was just like, can you come over? Like, in total shock. She did not believe me. She was like, are you kidding? And I was like, no, I'm not. Like, I need you here. A huge part of our life was taken so early. Christmases were different. Thanksgivings were different. Every holiday, birthday, was so different without them. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. And guess what? We have another two-parter episode for you today, don't we, Lex? We do. And you know, Listeners might be divided, but we've gotten a lot of feedback that people actually like them. For a while, we were doing a lot of them, and I feel like people were like, we want all of it in one sitting. But maybe now people have realized the value and really kind of delving into a story and a topic. Yeah. I mean, I personally love a deep dive. I love a binge. So uh, we're giving the people what they want. And if you are a member of our Patreon, you can listen to both parts right now and binge it in one sitting. If you're not a member of our Patreon, please join us. There's so much true crime content over there. And plus, you get to listen to any multi-parter episode immediately over on the Patreon. So I think that's it. I think that's it too. I think we're ready. All right, we're ready. So that is enough of that. So let's turn on the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. We've all heard the term cold-blooded killer, but what does that really mean? No one's blood is cold, not even the blood of the most violent, callous person alive. It's biologically impossible. So why is it that we associate emotions, feelings, and compassion with heat, and heartlessness, cruelty, and ruthlessness with cold? Well, here's the short version. Back in medieval times, it was thought that a person's personality was affected by the temperature of their physical body. Those who were cold were believed to be less emotional. 
literally because their body temperature was lower. Today, science and psychology have proven that this is false. Just wild ideas that were used to make people who didn't know any better feel better about the world around them. A way to separate the good from the bad, the kind from the evil. But that's not really reassuring. Because if we don't have a reason for people's cold-bloodedness, what do we have? A group of individuals who are willing to hurt others without any empathy, without any remorse? If we can't explain away their willingness to destroy others without a second thought, how do we help those people? How do we fix them before it's too late? Can we? And what happens when we can't? We begin today's case on August 3rd of 1999. TLC's No Scrubs was top on the charts. I mean, iconic, iconic song. I think about that song all the time still. Oh my God, it's so good. Uh, yeah. I love it. Also, Cher's Believe was holding really strong at number two. In the movies, everybody was going to see The Matrix. And at this time, Bill Clinton was the president of the United States. And this April, a federal judge held President Clinton in contempt of court for willfully providing false testimony about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky. So basically, this is when, as a nation, we were certain that Clinton did, in fact, have sexual relations with that woman. And the setting for today's case is Kansas City, Kansas. But Kansas City, Kansas is one of those big cities that is best characterized by its individual counties. So it's important that you know that today's case occurred in Wyandotte County, which locals affectionately call the Dot. Back in 1859, Wyandotte County was named after the Wendot Indians. And the county's constitution was key to ensuring that Kansas was formed as a free state, not a slave state. At the beginning of the Civil War in 1861. Today, Wyandotte County is known for its very nice and not very nice areas. You see, even though Wyandotte County is the smallest county in Kansas, it is the fourth most populated, with about 165,000 residents. And that many people packed into this 156 square miles has created somewhat of a dichotomy. On the one hand, there is a popular outdoor mall called The Legends, which is surrounded by beautiful apartment complexes. But on the other hand, nearly 17% of Wyandotte residents live below the poverty line, and that's about 5% higher than the national average. And according to Kansas law enforcement, Wyandotte's rate of violent crime is more than double some of its neighboring counties. Okay, speaking of crime, Wyandotte falls within Kansas City, Kansas Police Department's law enforcement jurisdiction. And as far as the Kansas City PD... Like many departments, there is some history of police corruption and misconduct within the department. In fact, an FBI investigation that was conducted during the early 90s turned up several incidences of alleged excessive force and brutality by police officers. One memo from 1993 to FBI headquarters said that there were 200 officers accused of misconduct. Some had just one complaint of excessive force against them. Others had between 8 and 17 excessive force complaints over a three-year period. So that's not nothing, right? So that being said, as we know, there are bad apples in most professions, and they don't speak to the totality of law enforcement as a whole or within this department. But bad actors in this department will come into play later, which is why we're flagging it here. So our first degree for today's case is named Becca, and Becca's first home was in Wyandotte County. When Becca was about a year old, her parents moved to the nearby city of Overland Park, Kansas. But Becca's family kept that Wyandotte property as a rental home. And this worked out really well because Becca's maternal grandparents lived very close to that rental property in Wyandotte. So as Becca and her parents would travel back and forth to do work on their rental, they visited Becca's mom's parents a lot. 
my mom bought her first house in KCK a couple blocks away from where they lived. And we had a hard time selling it and they rented it out. We moved to Oakland Park when I was a year old and we would always go over to my grandparents all the time, always spend time with them because they were so close. It seemed like a couple blocks away, but I think it was further than that the older I got. We would fix the house up and I would walk all the way over to their house or walk back or ride my bike. Like we were just so close when we were trying to fix up the house. And it would seem like a good neighborhood. It didn't seem too bad. I mean, it's Wyandotte. It's not the best area, but you know, in the 90s, it was starting to go downhill. Naturally, Becca became close with her maternal grandparents. But who were Becca's grandparents really? Well, let's first start with her grandfather, Wilbur, which I gotta say, incredible name for a grandfather. Wilbur John Williams was born on March 11th of 1920 to his mother Edith and his father Willie in Lebo, Kansas. And Wilbur's family tree had deep roots in Kansas. His father was born in Kansas and so was his mom. But Wilbur's paternal grandfather was actually from Wales, and he emigrated to the United States back in the 1800s. He made his way to Kansas where Wilbur's dad, Willie, was born. Then, Willie met Wilbur's mom, Edith, in the early 1900s, and they married in August of 1916. Honestly, these dates kind of blow my mind because we're literally just talking about like grandparents and great-grandparents, right? But it's so long ago, right? The next year, in 1917, Wilbur's older sister, Margaret, was born, then Wilbur himself in 1920. And after that came Wilbur's younger brother, Gilbert, in 1922. When Wilbur was 11 years old in 1931, the U.S. Census indicated that he lived in the small town of Lincoln, Kansas. By 1935, 15-year-old Wilbur lived in a different small town called Burlington, Kansas. But as Wilbur was living his best life in Kansas, his someday wife and our first-degree Becca's grandmother was living in Missouri. Her name is Wilma, which is just also the best grandmother name ever. Wilma and Wilbur are like the best names for a couple maybe I've ever heard. It sounds fake. It does. And it sounds like written. It's just perfect. So Wilma Faye King was born on February 2nd, 1926 in Phillipsburg, Missouri, to her mother, Recia, and her father, Claude. Just like Wilbur had strong roots in Kansas, Wilma had strong roots in Missouri. Her father and mother were both from Missouri. And according to Find a Grave, Wilma was the second oldest of four siblings. There was her older brother, Chester, who was born in 1916, her younger sister, Leela May, who was born in 1929, and her youngest brother, Richard, who was born in 1932. When Wilma was 20 years old, her father died at age 56. Two years later, 22-year-old Wilma married 28-year-old Wilbur on September 27th of 1948. Then they started their family and ultimately had daughters Donna and Kathy and sons Daniel and Bill. According to Becca, her grandfather Wilbur served in the military, but by the time Becca came along, both of her grandparents were retired. Wilbur and Wilma were described by those who knew them as gentle people. They were always happy to help and support others, and they were especially happy to help Becca. Wilbur and Wilma loved doting on their sweet granddaughter. They were both retired by the time I could remember, and they would always take us to Silverado City every year. They had season passes, and we would go every year. My grandpa would call me the ice girl because I'd always get the ice bucket from the machines at the hotels and bring them to the rooms. But where Grandpa Wilbur was hard, Grandma Wilma was really soft. They complimented each other perfectly. My grandpa was just kind of that tough loving, never really said I love you. My grandma was totally opposite. Like, she loved us all so much. In September of 1998, Wilbur and Wilma had their 50th wedding anniversary, which, 
Hot damn, that well, is an accomplishment. They just celebrated their 50th anniversary not too long before, which was pretty amazing. We did a really big celebration with all the family. My grandma's side of the family is pretty big, so a lot of people came. Outside of Wilma's father's death, she and Wilbur experienced most of their parental loss while they were married to each other. In 1960, Wilbur's father died at 78 when Wilbur was 40. And in 1964, 44-year-old Wilbur's mother died at the age of 79. Wilma's mother, Resia, died in 1977 when Wilma was 51. And according to Resia's obituary, she was 80 years old, a self-employed seamstress, and a member of the Church of Christ. Right, and that makes sense since Wilma herself was a regular churchgoer. In fact, each and every Wednesday evening, Becca and her mom would take Wilma to church with them and they'd go together. They'd drive to Wilma's small one-story house on the 2200 block of North 44th Street. Then the three of them would make their way to church. And on Wednesday, August 4th of 1999, things should have been no different. Becca, who at the time was in seventh grade, should have hopped out of her mom's car, grabbed her 73-year-old grandma, and gone to church together and enjoyed this evening service. But instead, Becca walked into a nightmare. We would go to church with my grandma every Wednesday. And that is when we found them live on a Wednesday night because we were going to pick her up. I wasn't in school yet because it was August 4th. It was just a summer day. It was before cell phones. I think my mom talked to my grandma the day before, the day that it happened. But we didn't talk to them that day. And we just went over there every Wednesday. That was just a given. So we just had it over like normal. And we parked in the driveway to get my grandma. I was the first one to walk up to the door. And I remember it was open a little bit, and I was just like, hmm, that's a little weird, but maybe they're just like, my grandma's getting ready, my grandpa's eating something in the kitchen, so I just walked in. And when I walked in, I noticed the TV was on, the lights were on, so I thought, my grandma's getting ready in the bedroom, my grandpa's in the kitchen, let me go see. And I'm like yelling out, you know, hi, we're here. And I like turn into the kitchen, and I just remember seeing my grandpa on the ground. 79-year-old Wilbur John Williams was on the floor and he had been killed. So had his 73-year-old wife, Wilma Faye Williams. They had both been shot. Later, the autopsies would reveal that Wilbur suffered five gunshot wounds, one to the left side of his face, one to the left side of his head behind his ear, one to the left side of his back chest, one to his left hand, and one to his right upper arm. Wilma had suffered four gunshot wounds. Two were to the right side of her face, one was to the left side of her neck, and the last was a graze around her hand. Later, Wilbur and Wilma's main causes of death would be listed as blood loss. But for now, their bodies were lying prone on the kitchen floor, and Becca had found them at only 12 years old. Processing this discovery as quickly as her young brain was capable of, upon realizing that her own grandparents had been murdered, Becca had a pressing thought. What if their killer was still close by? What if her and her mother were in danger? My first thought was, they're still in the house. We need to get out of here. My mom wasn't even in the door yet. And I just remember opening the door. I ran out and opened the door. And I was like, no, we got to go. We got to go. Don't go in. Don't go in. And she's like, what? And I'm like, no, we can't. You know, I was thinking they're still in the house. Like, these people could be in there to get us. And so my mom went in and discovered the bodies. And so she had to basically call 911 and face all of that. And I just remember crying and screaming and thinking, they're still in here. We got to get out. You know, little did I know they were there all day. 
and the night. When the police arrived, Becca waited outside. And while everyone around Becca was caught up in their own world, like with the authorities cataloging the crime scene and her mother dealing with her own unimaginable shock and grief, Becca was also in complete and utter shock. Like, how could this be happening? I just remember being so scared and hurt, like upset. It was a lot of emotions and no one would really comfort me. And I just wanted comfort, but my mom was too busy dealing with, you know, the police and everything and the shock that she was in and the shock I'm in. And it just kind of all happened so fast. My body just went into a lot of shock. And naturally, Becca's mom would have been in the throes of her own trauma stemming from finding her parents like this. The last thing anybody would ever expect is finding their kind elderly parents murdered in a situation like this. Like, it's completely unfathomable. I remember, like, I didn't eat or sleep for a couple of days. The doctor had to end up giving us some medication to help us calm down. I'm sure it was some kind of anxiety medicine. Becca's parents went to the police station to fill out all the paperwork and answer questions. And Becca stayed with her other grandparents, the ones on her dad's side. But when Becca called her childhood best friend for support, it took that friend a while to comprehend exactly what Becca was saying to her. And we get it. This is a lot to process. I remember calling my best friend since kindergarten. I was just like, can you come over? Like, in total shock. I was like, my grandparents were killed. And she did not believe me. She was like, are you kidding? And I was like, no, I'm not. Like, I need you here. So what exactly happened to Wilbur and Wilma Williams? Who would do such a heinous, horrible thing to these two wonderful grandparents? Was this a targeted hit, a robbery gone wrong, or something else? Surely the murderer was a career criminal, right? Who else but a seasoned murderer could have shot an elderly couple in cold blood? To answer all these questions, you know the drill. We gotta go back. Following the discovery of Wilbur and Wilma Williams in their home, law enforcement immediately sprung into action in an effort to identify who had done this. And around 6 p.m., as the police descended upon the home, they learned that Wilma and Wilbur had been lying in their kitchen for about a day prior to being found by Becca and her mother. And they could tell because the blood at the scene was mostly dry. The police could also tell that while some things had been stolen, the house wasn't overturned or in any state of massive disarray. So what did this mean? Was this a botched robbery? Were the person or persons responsible seasoned in committing crimes like this? Based on the variables at the scene, it appeared that whoever had been in the Williams home had left in a hurry. Additionally, there was no sign of a forced entry. Two doors had been left open, the door from the kitchen to the basement and the door from the basement to the backyard. There were also seven spent 65 millimeter shell casings near the Williams bodies. In Wilbur and Wilma's carport, where their white 1992 Dodge Spirit was usually parked, was conspicuously empty. So did this mean that their car had been stolen as well? At this point, it certainly seemed like it. Officer Terry Ziegler of the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department was assigned to the case. Side note, decades later, Terry would become the chief of the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department. So keep that in mind as the story progresses. But back in 1999, Terry was a detective who had been assigned to investigate the murders of Wilbur and Wilma. Right away, the investigation began with trying to locate the couple's missing Dodge Spirit. One witness who knew the neighborhood well, 
agreed to speak with detectives. And according to him, he saw two black male teenagers driving the Williams car away from their home. And that had happened on Tuesday, August 3rd, the day before Becca found her grandparents. Okay, so this seems like a rather explosive lead. Then a different neighbor also confirmed this, saying that they heard tires squeal down the street at around the same time. And minutes before this tire squeal, that neighbor had heard several gunshots. At the moment, the neighbor hadn't realized that they were gunshots. They just thought that they were fireworks. And of course, hindsight is always twenty twenty. You know, most people don't think the worst when they hear sounds like that. Right. Then the next day, on Thursday, August 5th of 99, the police found Wilbur and Wilma's car at around 2 o'clock in the morning. Chillingly, it had been set on fire in a parking lot in Kansas City. At this point, the police might have felt like they were at a dead end. Because other than the statements from the neighbors who had seen the Williams vehicle speed away from the scene, they had nothing else. No suspects, no motive, and no murder weapon. Honestly, this case might have and could have gone cold. But one anonymous tip broke the whole thing wide open. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. On Saturday, August 7th of 1999, three days after Wilbur and Wilma Williams were found shot to death by their granddaughter, our first-degree Becca, a person anonymously contacted the police. And according to Becca, this unknown tipster might have been a local drug dealer, but it's not clear. Whoever they were, they had recently spotted four young men in Wilbur and Wilma Williams's car. Their names were Michael Elias, Kendall Elias, Jeffrey Brown, and Jeremy Brown. Finally, the authorities had what seemed to be like strong, verifiable leads. One that gave them not one, not two, 
not three, but four people to question about this senseless double murder. And the odds were high that at least one of the four would know something and be able to tell them anything helpful about the case. The police were able to track down at least two of them. And sure enough, Jeffrey Brown and Kendall Elias told the police exactly how they become to find themselves in the car belonging to Wilbur and Wilma. Apparently, their two friends had left them with a vehicle. And those two friends were identical twin brothers, Donnell and Ronnell Williams. And they were only 14 years old. And despite having the same last name, they were not related to Wilbur and Wilma. But that definitely is a strange coincidence. Right. And according to 16-year-old Jeffrey Brown, Donnell and Ronnell picked up him and Kendall in this white Dodge spirit. But then the twin brothers had to leave. They needed to get home before their mother noticed their absence. So Donnell and Ronnell instructed Jeffrey and Kendall to keep the car. Then the four of them would all meet up again later the next night. So Kendall took the car to his house. And the next morning, he and some other teenage boys drove the car around. But then apparently when Jeffrey, Kendall, and the others saw the double homicide investigation on the local news and that a missing white 1992 Dodge Spirit was somehow involved, they realized something serious was going on, something that they wanted no part of. So no one ever took the vehicle back to Donnell and Ronnell. Instead, they gave the car to a guy named Jay. No one ever explicitly states who set the car on fire in the parking lot, but it really seems like it was this Jay person. It seems as though no one wanted to be caught in possession of the car now that they knew it was connected to a double homicide. Right. And equipped with this new information, the police tracked down Donnell and Ronnell and searched the home they shared with their mother, Ophelia Williams, and they had two other siblings too. And this search was conducted on Sunday, August 8th of 99 at about 7 a.m., According to court documents, Ophelia was home with her four children, her twin boys, Ronnell and Donnell, who were the suspects, her 13-year-old son, Ortez, and her 12-year-old daughter, Samantha. So she woke up that morning to pounding on her front door and opened it wearing just her nightgown. Outside was a gaggle of police officers with search warrants, and she let them in. According to the documents, investigators found ammunition in the boys' bedroom, that were the same as the shell casings found in Wilbur and Wilma's kitchen, which tied them to the crime. And as it turns out, Donnell and Ronnell's house was only half a mile away from Wilbur and Wilma's home. Five days after Wilbur and Wilma's bodies were discovered, the teenage twin brothers Donnell and Ronnell Williams were arrested. They faced two charges of first-degree murder. Donnell was charged with additional counts of burglary and theft related to three separate break-ins. And this had taken place in the days leading up to the murder of Wilbur and Wilma Williams. It really is crazy to me, like 14-year-old boys being arrested for something like this. It just seems so young. And I think about what I was doing at 14, and I just feel so lucky to not have been exposed to crime or like, it's just unbelievable to me. I don't even know what to say. Yeah, it really is just, uh, you think about how your brain is developed at 14 and just doesn't seem like that could even get in there. I was afraid of, I was just afraid of everything. I was afraid of adults. I was afraid of like doing anything wrong. And it's just... It's just very sad that this happened, A, to this couple who lost their lives. And it's sad that two 14-year-olds could find themselves in a, a place where they'd want to do something like this. Absolutely. So who are these twin brothers? If they are responsible, how do they find themselves in this situation? Where did they get a gun? Why did they do this? And why did they do it to Wilma and Wilbur Williams, two loving grandparents? Donnell and Ronnell Williams were born on September 1st of 1984 in Missouri to their mom, Ophelia Petaway Williams. We don't know anything about their lives because at only 14, what is there to know? They're still children. At that age, kids have 
completed elementary school. And that's kind of about it. Maybe a year or two of middle school. There isn't much to be reported on. They're supposed to be doing things like hanging with their friends, doing their homework, spending time with their family. But all we do know about them is what they were doing on Tuesday, August 3rd of 1999. So Donnell and Ronald lived with their mother and two younger siblings just a few blocks away from Wilbur and Wilma's home. And on that Tuesday afternoon, the twins burglarized at least one other house. Not Wilma and Wilbur's home, a different one in the same area. The woman who lived in this house had stepped out for only an hour. And within that time, Donnell and Ronnell had broken in. There are some questions about this break-in. Perhaps just Donnell broke in since he was the only one charged with burglary at this time of the arrests. But maybe Ronnell was outside acting as a lookout. Either way, there's very little information available about this burglary. Regardless, one or both of the twin teens pried open this woman's back door and stole the following items. Several diamond rings, three cameras, a box full of Fiacci brand 32 caliber automatic ammunition, and a 32 caliber pistol. And they weren't satisfied after they succeeded in this burglary, proven by what they did next. Armed with a stolen gun and ammunition, the twins went back to their house and shot off a few rounds in the backyard. The police investigation verified this because detectives found used shell casings there. They also found that empty box of Fiacci brand ammunition taken in the burglary. So next, Donnell and Ronnell went to their friend's house, you know, probably to show off their new gun that they had just stolen. And after that, they wandered into their neighborhood aimlessly, apparently looking for more trouble. And as they wandered, by pure chance, they saw Wilbur Williams walking outside of his home, having a normal day, going to his mailbox. And according to Ronnell's police statement, when he saw Wilbur... He took the stolen gun from Donnell and then held that gun to Wilbur's head. At gunpoint, Ronnell ordered Wilbur to go towards his own backyard because that's where his wife Wilma was. She was outside working in their garden. Wilbur held at gunpoint complied. And after Ronnell and Donnell had rounded the couple up, he explained to them that he and Donnell were going to rob them. The 14-year-old boys ordered the couple to go inside their house and being held at gunpoint, Wilbur and Wilma had no choice but to comply. All four of them entered Wilbur and Wilma's basement, climbed the stairs to their kitchen, and stopped there. You really can't even begin to imagine how you'd feel if something like this happened to you. One second, you're doing the most mundane activity, like getting your mail or gardening. And the next moment, your life is being threatened by two young strangers. According to statements later provided by Ronnell and Donnell themselves, it was at this point that Wilbur and Wilma began whispering to each other possibly strategizing as to how they could get through this or out of this together. Then Wilma somehow got her hands on the phone and tried to call someone for help using a cordless telephone. But Donnell spotted this and took the telephone from Wilma and put it out of her reach in the bedroom, which is exactly where the authorities found it later. Ronnell cornered Wilma and Wilbur at gunpoint in their kitchen, and Donnell began running through the house searching for valuables that they could steal. Eventually, Donnell returned to the kitchen with car keys in Wilma's purse. Then Ronell told Donnell to get into the car because he was going to kill Wilbur and Wilma, which is absolutely horrifying. Later, the brothers explained to law enforcement officials that they didn't want Wilbur or Wilma being able to identify them, so that is why they needed to kill them. At this point, Donnell did as his brother told him and retrieved the car. Then he drove it around to the front of the house and waited. And at the same time, Wilbur realized that this might be he and Wilma's last chance to survive this ordeal. So he grabbed a kitchen knife to try to fend off Ronell, and that's when Ronell started shooting. No one was hit by the first shot, but it smashed out a window. But Wilbur was obviously frightened by it. 
And as a result, Wilbur dropped the knife and fell to his hands and knees. And that's when Ronell shot him multiple times. At this, Wilma screamed and fell to the floor in emotional agony. And that's when Ronell shot her at close range. Then Ronell got into the car with Donnell and the twin brothers fled the scene. Yeah, and everyone, this is obviously the definition of a senseless crime. Wilbur and Wilma should still be here to be there for their children and grandchildren. After living honest, wonderful lives, they should not have had to lose their lives in fear this way. When all was said and done, in total, the brothers had gotten away with some jewelry and then less than $100 cash and their car, while leaving Wilbur and Wilma to die slowly from blood loss. My grandparents were still alive when they left. Like, they left them to die. I just think it was a horrible way. I think he said, like, my grandma was still breathing for air, like... He knew that they were still alive, and he chose to walk out and leave. For Becca, the time immediately following her grandparents' murders were somewhat of a blur. The magnitude of what she discovered that day was hard for her 12-year-old brain to comprehend. Plus, her parents also did everything they could to shield Becca from absorbing additional details or trauma. We never really talked about it. My parents kind of sheltered me from everything after it happened, and just kind of we act like nothing happened, I guess. After Wilbur and Wilma were found, the community was completely on edge. No one knew who would want to harm this lovely old couple, and there was concern that others would be targeted or in danger. Meanwhile, Donnell and Ronnell weren't exactly beating themselves up about the horrific thing that they had just done. In fact, it was kind of the contrary. For days, Donnell and Ronnell tried to get away with what they'd done, and they took steps to cover their tracks. As you already know, they drove Wilbur and Wilma's car around with their friends. And they went to church with their mother that very Sunday. Then they gave the vehicle to an associate to try to wash their hands of this evidence and therefore their problems. Right. And they fully acted as though nothing had even happened. It's clear that these 14-year-old boys had no intention of turning themselves in, ever. But I also want to say, 14, you really have no idea the magnitude of doing something like this. You have no idea what long-term consequences look like because you haven't existed in long-term. I really don't think kids at this age understand murder and death. I think, yeah, of course they're going to act like this is downplayed because they're children. They don't fucking get it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And prosecutor Nick Tomasek would go on to tell the Associated Press, they didn't show any remorse. Their only remorse is that they got caught. And like I say, I think the remorselessness at that age is immaturity. You know, I don't think they really understood the pain they caused at this point. Meanwhile, as Donnell and Ronnell were going about their lives and pretending they weren't murderers, our first-degree Becca and her family were left to clean up their mess, both emotionally and literally and physically. My dad had to deal with all, like, the cleaning up and everything. I do remember, like, I told them I never want to go back to that house again. And so my parents made sure, like, when they were cleaning out the house and getting it ready for auction, that I was never there. It took me a while. I think I was probably in my 20s before I actually drove by it. it. took me a while to process it. Becca struggled to reconcile the trauma of her experience. She had images in her head that she could not erase. And the loss of her grandparents created a gaping hole in her life. But there was no more picking up her grandmother for church, and it was difficult to watch her mom in so much pain. In the days following the murders, when Becca's family didn't know who was responsible, there was additional fear and agony, wondering whether whoever it was would possibly get away with this. The family then had to deal with the daunting task of planning a double funeral for Wilbur and Wilma. 
And the hope was that an arrest would have been made by the time the funeral occurred. But as the day approached, there had seemingly been no movement in this case. By this point, there had been an explosion of media interest in what happened, which is something Beck and her family were reminded of as they arrived at her grandparents' memorial services. I mean, there was a lot of media presence, too. Like, I remember the funeral. There was anchors hiding out in the bushes trying to get, like, pictures of us and video. The police were working hard behind the scenes, even if Becca and her family weren't aware of it at the time. And there was relief when they learned that an arrest had been made on the same day as the funeral services. And I'm sure that they were extremely shocked to learn that two teenage twins were the culprit. We actually had a family member that was in the KCK Police Department, and we were at the wake for their service. And it was that night he found out that they caught them. And he was like, I just want to let you guys know that we have caught them. They are caught. You can have a sigh of relief now that, you know, they're not out there. We are very blessed to have found out so fast because a lot of people don't find out. And I couldn't imagine the feeling of that day after day. But of course, knowing the identity of the perpetrators and learning that they'd been apprehended couldn't exactly fix what had been broken and couldn't replace what had been taken. Becca and her family's lives were forever changed. Now they would always have to deal with the consequences of these boys' actions. And beyond that, they had to emotionally reconcile that two children had done this to Wilma and Wilbur. Becca's entire life changed because of the awful decisions made by these 14-year-olds. A huge part of our life was taken so early. Christmases were different. Thanksgivings were different. Every holiday, birthday, was so different without them. Definitely caused a lot of family. Like, you understand who holds the family together. And when that's gone, I feel like the family can break apart easily. I just feel like I was in survival mode just to get through life. And, you know, start middle school was hard. And then... Starting high school, like all these big things going on in my life. And it just all is is a blur to me. My mom's been my rock through it all. And I mean, she's been through a lot too. I can't imagine, you know, how she felt and feels. Becca and her family weren't the only ones surprised by the arrest of two 14-year-olds as the suspects in this case. I mean, everybody was floored. How could two kids do something so terrible? The brutality of their crimes were obvious. But now that they are under arrest, what would happen next? Right. The question is, would the state find mitigating circumstances and try them and prosecute them in juvenile court? Or would they be tried as adults? So what did the state law call for? The community at large pushed for the 14-year-old twins to be tried in adult court. Wilbur and Wilma's daughter-in-law, Reagan Van Bibber, even started a petition calling for it. She told the Springfield News Leader, It just makes me sick because they didn't have to kill them. They were executed. And in that context, she means Wilma and Wilbur were executed. And it's true. Ronnell and Donnell had no reason to kill this couple. And if they could so flippantly kill two people, maybe that meant society needed to be protected from them. Reagan accumulated more than 100 signatures and dozens more sent letters to the courthouse with the same intent. And we want to remind you that she collected these in 1999, and this is before social media could aid in any sort of awareness campaign. So it's really impressive. And she was probably going door to door for signatures. Right. And here's the thing. There was about to be a crazy, unexpected twist in this case. Only one of these two brothers would actually face a jury trial at all. 
Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. On November 16th of the year 2000, the now 16-year-old Donnell Williams pleaded guilty to two counts of first-degree murder. In exchange for this plea deal, all of Donnell's other charges, mostly related to burglary, were dropped. Donnell received a sentence of life in prison with the possibility of parole after 25 years, and he expressed remorse for his role in the murders. But only one month later, Donnell tried to take his plea deal back, and instead he wanted to go to trial. Right. And in January of 2001, the courts had reviewed his motion to rescind his plea. And they said, absolutely not. So they forced Donnell to accept the plea deal he'd already agreed to. But then in March of 2003, the Supreme Court of Kansas decided Donnell should have been allowed to withdraw his plea. They found proof in the transcripts that a judge had mistakenly told Donnell that if he pled guilty, he'd get up to 25 years in prison, which is very different from the life in prison with the possibility of parole after 25 years that Donnell received. All right, so what exactly did this mean for Donnell? And what would this mean in terms of additional steps Becca's family would have to go through to get justice for Wilma and Wilbur? So Donnell's plea and sentencing decisions were reversed, which meant that he would go to trial and he was all set to do so. We're not exactly sure what he thought was going to happen in trial or whether he thought that there'd somehow be a more favorable outcome for himself. After all, they caught Donnell red-handed alongside his brother. And it happens that both he and Ronnell had since shared everything with police. So it wasn't really like Donnell was going to be found not guilty by a jury of his peers. And I don't know, maybe he knew that. Because in August of 2003, Donnell pleaded guilty to two counts of first-degree murder again. Right. So after all of that, he ended up taking the same exact plea deal as before. It doesn't make a ton of sense. But I want to underscore, we're dealing with teenage boys. They didn't know what they were doing. This is exactly what happened, though. And as a result, Donnell received the exact same sentence as he had before, life in prison with the possibility of parole after 25 years. And everyone just continued plugging along as they did before Donnell's appeal process started. It's kind of wild and kind of anticlimactic. Meanwhile, back in December of 2000, 16-year-old Ronnell Williams chose not to take the plea deal, and instead he wanted to go to trial. And this is one where he was going to be prosecuted as an adult. And while at first degree, Becca's parents did their best to keep this trauma out of Becca's life, she ended up going to Ronnell's trial. And she actually had to because she was subpoenaed as a witness. But since Becca was still in middle school and a minor, they had to give her testimony in a private room, thank God. We can't imagine how traumatic all of this was for her, just in general. Honestly, they sheltered me a lot from it. I had to testify so they knew that they couldn't hide 
everything for me. We had a really good lawyer. I remember we went and talked to him before. He like sat us down and he was talking to us about like what for me to expect and everything. And I was like, I just don't want to see any pictures. You know, like I don't want them to show me pictures and or anything. And I remember they did keep that away from me. He was like, we won't do that to you, you know, but you, you still need to get up there and say what happened. I just remember it being really quick. My whole family, all my family was in there, you know, just being really supportive of it. And I just remember going up there and just saying, you know, what I remember that night, what happened. And then just, that was it. Then getting off. I remember looking at Ronald, the one that did it, and he was just cold, no emotion. Ronald's entire defense was that he supposedly had a mental defect, and his attorneys brought in a psychologist named Dr. Jan Rusa for expert testimony. And Dr. Rusa explained that Ronald had a brain impairment, one that caused him severe problems with social judgment. According to Dr. Rusa, Ronald wasn't thinking about any of his actions. I mean, I'm not an expert, but this just sounds like He's a 14-year-old with a gun. Yeah. What is the defect that's causing him to not think about his actions? Immaturity? Yeah. And Dr. Russo basically said he couldn't think of the outcome of his actions. And Ronald's specific neurological issue apparently made it so that he could only react as things happen to him. This seems really vague and abstract, but Ronald's defense counsel argued he couldn't have premeditated this alleged first-degree murder because he couldn't think about any of his actions before he did them. It kind of seems like word soup to me. Yeah, like there's no diagnoses. Yeah. He's just like saying shit. It sounds just like he's got an underdeveloped 14-year-old brain who doesn't understand the consequences of their actions. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how else to frame this, but I have to say during some of the proceedings, I did a bunch of research and learned that Ronell looked visibly bored. He smiled a lot. He laughed a lot. And at one point, blew spit bubbles during the proceedings as Wilma and Wilbur's family looked on. So this is what we're dealing with here. So in closing arguments, Ronell's legal team stated that Ronell does not know what he's doing. He's just doing things. There was no intent to kill anybody. You know, this seems kind of strange considering that Ronell told Donnell, hey, go get the car. I'm going to kill these people. Like, that sounds like he knows what he's doing. That sounds like he's planning. He's not just reacting to things. So I don't know about that statement. Right. And the jury felt the same way that we do. And after four days of trial, 16-year-old Ronnell Williams was convicted of two counts of premeditated first-degree murder, one count of aggravated robbery and one count of aggravated burglary. He did not apologize or express any remorse. After hearing Ronnell's guilty verdict, his mother, Ophelia Petaway Williams, began screaming and wouldn't stop. It took three sheriff's deputies to pull her from the courtroom. Yeah, and it's easy to forget that the family of a murderer, or in this case, the family of two murderers, is also forced to undergo massive life changes and a lot of trauma. No one should have to deal with the pain of their children robbing, burglarizing, or killing people. Right, and it is losing your children. I mean, I have incredible empathy for her. Like, it's painful to think that your children are going to prison, and it's painful to think that your children caused so much pain for another family. So according to court documents, Ronell was sentenced to two hard 50 terms, a term of 59 months for his robbery and a term of 32 months for the burglary, all to run concurrently. Neither Donnell or Ronell could face the death penalty since they were both under the age of 18 at the time of their crimes. 
But here's the thing. So believe it or not, the sentencing of these twin brothers would not close this case. In fact, the case was now far from over. Right, because remember how we told you about the sordid history of corruption within the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department? Well, all of that was about to come into play here. As a reminder, a detective named Terry Ziegler had been assigned to investigate Wilbur and Wilma Williams' homicide. And Terry, at the time, had been partnered with a veteran officer named Roger Golubsky for many years. And it was Golubsky's alleged connection to the investigation that would thrust this case back into the spotlight in 2017, along with many others, as far as cases he was assigned to. As a detective, Golubsky worked in cases of low-income, majority-black neighborhoods, and he wielded his power as an officer, which allowed him to cultivate a network of female informants. In 2017, Golubsky became the focus of a corruption investigation. He was accused of preying on impoverished Black residents by exploiting a network of female informants for sex and for coerced testimony, which he allegedly used to close cases. And while Golubsky denies these allegations, the testimony implicating him is staggering. And here's where we're going to pull it all together for you. One of Golubsky's accusers is Ophelia Petaway Williams, the mother of Ronnell and Donnell Williams. And I want to make something very clear. Former Detective Roger Golubsky appears to be a pretty bad man. At the very least, he terrorized residents in Wyandotte for years and exploited his power as an officer over the most vulnerable populations. He's awful. That much isn't really up for debate. But the question is, could Golubsky's misdeeds derail and undo the justice Wilbur and Wilma Williams received and very much deserved? Who is this guy? What did he do? How has the renewed interest in this case impacted Becca and her family? And are Ronnell and Donnell Williams remorseful now after spending years behind bars? Well, you're going to get to hear from them yourself next week in part two. huge thank you to becca for being our first grief for today's episode she will be with us next week or right now if you are on our patreon if you are listening out there and you have a story to tell please email us hello at the first grief podcast.com follow us on instagram join our facebook group we're talking true crime all the time join our patreon if you're looking for more awesome true crime content and stick around tomorrow we'll have a brand new episode of killing time right in your feed and remember only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close but not that close Shout out to Jordan Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Andrea Marshbank and myself. Sources for this episode are Ancestry, Court Documents, Find a Grave, Kansas Department of Corrections, The Leavenworth Times, The Kansas City Times, The Iola Register, The Olathe Daily News, The Springfield News Leader, The Kansas Crime Index, CNN, and The Kansas City Star. And as always, our first degree guest is always our largest source. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.